welcome to this week's episode of the Spinoza Triad, in which Richard, Dan and I attempt to apply the ideas of Hegel, or at least Hegel's philosophy of history, to the rise of China. We discuss Hegel and Hegel's view that history might come to an end. We discuss whether that's exactly a contemporary reading of Hegel. Certainly Hegel didn't believe that history was one damn thing happening after another. Whatever history was, it was distinctly moving forward through processes, through periods, through some sort of direction. Well, we wondered how the contemporary rise of China might fit with his most famous observation that history could one day end. An observation that was picked up by Marx and later by Francis Fukuyama in his essay, The End of History and the Last Man. We certainly range over a lot of thoughts, ideas from education to China to Hegel to the end of history. I hope you enjoy our discussion. This is a question. If in the future you can imagine an image of the future which was represented by the film Mad Max, or an image of the future that was represented by the Star Trek universe. And I said to you, imagine 500 years in the future. Which is a closer description? Is it dystopian Mad Max? Giant engines driving around, biker gangs ruling, ruling a wild and savage world. Or is it Star Trek? Well, it isn't utopia. There's a sort of highly technical world of people who seem to have conquered disease, they seem to have conquered pollution, they're flying around the universe. Which is closer to our conception of human destiny? Well, I would say at the moment with climate change, the Mad Max dystopian outlook. A bit gloomy, but you know. I think if you carry on the way we're going, you're going to end up with an elite, and then you're going to end up with dystopian people stuck on Earth, you know, suffering. <laughs> Interesting there is what we tend to be doing in science fiction generally of that kind is to be extrapolating our fears today into the future, so far more than there are aspirations. So they represent those things which might go wrong that we see sort of going wrong today. Which Interesting, uh, I mean, Dan, you point to climate change, but Richard, you, your observation that something about the class structure, elites and inequalities might, if you roll that through the centuries into the future, might lead to something absolutely awful and appalling. Well, you know, anyway, who, who would have thought inequality would become such an enormous feature of Western culture, particularly, or indeed world culture, and the difference between the life of most people on the planet and a tiny elite. This reminds me of H.G. Wells' time machine. So the time traveller in the time machine flies thousands of years into the future. He yeah. finds that the, the, the upper classes have evolved into a sort of moronic but beautiful people who are eaten by the working classes who now live below ground. They're technically proficient, but they're cannibals. Yes, the, the Eloy are the beautiful children. They're simple-minded, beauty, beautiful sit around talking inanity to each other and eating fruits. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're sort of, yeah, exactly. They are, they are, they are, they are moronically beautiful children. But below yeah. ground, technically proficient warlocks use them for, use them for meat. <laughs> so why are they the elite if they're, if they're turned to meat? Well, they're not the elite. They live in these ruined palaces. They live in a garden. They live in this a garden. So when he first gets there, he thinks he's arrived in sort of some sort of paradise. And he can't understand why the, you know, the garden is so beautiful and maintained. And it's because it's a, it's a farm. They are the cattle. The below ground are the technocrats, but they are cannibalistic technocrats, and they're sort of hideous, big, bug-eyed creatures. But, but this, this is what the working class... Anyway, so what, what that's proposing is not Hegelian, is it? 
that's a pessimistic view. Human destiny doesn't naturally carry you towards some kind of end of history. And if it's an end of history, then it's horrifying. It's, it's a slow evolutionary decay into, into something, into some sort of nightmare. of progress running through ever that the individual age cannot see yeah or if anyone could see it there'd be a few there'd be a few that the philosophers you know in, in, like in any him. given age there might be a few they might they might make some sort of contribution to the progress of the geist hegel sees history as driven by a, a, a positive spirit an essence uh, which he calls the geist or the ghost of history the ghost in the machine of history driving it forward Hegel's view of history must surely be ultimately optimistic. If history is driven forward by reason and reason leads to a greater understanding of freedom and at some point an ultimate understanding of freedom, which might or might not draw history to a conclusion, that isn't the nightmare future. The Geist is the essence which is rational and that rational essence drives them towards an understanding of freedom, which has been imperfect throughout history, but during each age of history, some greater and more perfect understanding of what human freedom is, driven by individuals collectively in the family, in their um, social organization, and above all in the nation. So the nation embodies the spirit of the collective um, nature of individuals to be rational and seek freedom. You're saying arriving at an endpoint in history. Understanding that's going to be one day achieved, an understanding of freedom. So there will be an ultimate understanding. So human beings have an innate capacity for reason and the natural consequence, almost like the hunger. So just like people have a natural capacity for, for hunger and the object of that hunger is food. So the natural capacity for reason, the, the, the object of that is freedom. So yeah. the, re the reasoning human desires freedom. And yeah. through time, they, they evolve and in greater and greater and greater understanding of what that freedom is. Until at some point, having achieved an understanding, of, a complete understanding of that freedom, history comes to an end. Do you think then in Hegel, it's a sense of an end history, a finite end? Because my, my understanding of it is, 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 is that it doesn't resolve, that you never, the whole, if you like, is, is understood as contradiction. So you don't actually get, yeah, sorry, Dan, go on. Yeah, I was going to just say quickly, it's the end of history, not like an end point in time, but the aim of history. So, so it's, it's a target which might be ever moving and never reached. But it's so when you say the end of history, it means the aim of history. Yeah, so history served its purpose. Some, something in the purpose, something in the, the action of history, the geist. If human beings continue, there'll be a greater realisation if they continue to learn from their mistakes. So, so the aim is to always make ourselves better, not as individuals, but as a, as a, as a collective period of well, history. Well, the, well, you know, the individual desire for personal fulfillment, their, their desire to express their rational inner self, in other words, the, the natural desire of humans, or the natural capacity of humans to be themselves, and to be themselves as a human is to be rational, so to be to be yourself as a human, to be rational, is the, the, the natural object of that is freedom. And that that individual desire collectively adds to the to the you know the momentum of 
of history, society, all humans through, not in a, a narrative sense in the way in which we think of history normally, but in terms of a, an unfolding dialectically, uh, rationally, this idea that, that two, two positions engage and this sort of contradiction is narrated and then brought into the whole again. We were talking about like history and where we are now, where possible future histories would be. Or So I thought a way of entering that with an example would be, I felt this, this guy still the spirit that he talks about, the spirit of our age, a kind of collective narrative or a spirit. Geist, yeah. Yeah, a geist that has within it certain contradictions that we understand. So, so if we say determinant opposites, so we live in a liberal society at the moment and freedom, again, for Hegel is, is really the, the sort of underpinning idea. Today's sort of modern dominant ideologies of, of liberalism and freedom. But the contradiction within that is if, if everybody has freedom, whose version of freedom have you got? So you yes. end up in an authoritarian state. So if, if you were to have a conversation with someone who believed that it was the right of free individuals to own a gun, as you might be, yeah. you might fall into a conversation with someone. Yeah. And you as a Brit, as we, we would be horrified, might yeah. be horrified by that. And say, so no, your freedom to own a gun contradicts my freedom to be free from gun crime or the danger of a society yeah. with guns in it. So you'll be, we'll all be freer if we collectively don't own guns. But that does contradict the idea of the individual choice and the ability yeah. to the freedom of an individual to assert their own autonomous rights. Does, does that idea, the gun owner, have no merit to it at all? Is there some thread, some idea of individual personal autonomy, which I do need to incorporate in an idea, my idea of collective freedom? If I ban all sorts of things, if I live in a society of, of banning this in order to make us free, banning that to make us free. Yeah. I'm realising that the, that the libertarian argument has some merit. I've got, to, I've got to find a synthesis. That's the contradiction, though. That's what he's talking about, isn't it? Those contradictions. Recently, I found an article in the South China Morning Post arguing that Hegel predicted China as it is today. China is the end of history because the final rational development of history will be a society where people are unified and they are committed to a, to a collective understanding of what society is. In other words, the end of all arguments, there'll be some sort of utopian collective society. And then they're claiming that's what China was today. I think Hegel would say people would choose that freely. It would, it would be a complete understanding of each other with no restrictions at all and people would be putting restrictions upon themselves for the greater good. The whole of human history should be seen as the development of an individual person. You grow in maturity, you grow in reason and the learning, which might be, going back to what you said at the beginning about what, which film will we pick, you know, is that our dotage? It depends where we are along the line. Are we, in, are we still in our youth? Are we in our middle age? Or are we close to dotage? Final age of man, staring yeah. out of the window and wondering when your dinner's going to arrive. <laughs> and this idea of speculation, the speculative knowledge, which is in a form of absolute knowledge in, in its entirety, is, is the recognition of a liberal democracy and, and freedom. That freedom is its own contradiction because it, it doesn't exist without we have a, a, you know, a definition of it, who is somebody's, but have to be, there have to be people within it. It becomes authoritarianism. It, are you saying... Yeah. I don't know what I'm saying, John. That's right. fine. <laughs> I, I, I take, I take it. It made, it made sense when I thought it as I wrote it down. There is a debate, isn't there? I mean, immediately Hegel is, while he's alive and soon after he's dead, there are the, there are the right Hegelians who argue that the Prussian state is what Hegel was predicting and they've already arrived there. Thank you very much. And then yeah. there are the left Hegelians who say we've got a long way to go yet. What you seem to be describing there is rather than an end of history, you never actually arrive at the end of history. You actually like, can't with his model. Is it some like some Zeno paradox? You know, the, the frog always yeah. 
jumps towards the the end because he goes halfway at a time. He can never arrive at the end. So essentially, we're always in a process of moving towards the end of it. Becoming. So subjectivity arises again out this incompleteness of the whole, of the absolute. And the absolute, it's not absolute knowing. Absolute knowing for Hegel doesn't mean that you know everything. It's realising the inherent contradiction within everything. And it's this massive field, if you like, of difference that is Hegel's wholeness or absoluteness. I mean, I, I will say this as well, just to, to both of our listeners, <laughs> as it were. That, uh, yeah. we're, both, we're both here, Richard. We're both here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think uh, the dialectic isn't these two things that have resolved, and it's, there's no result. It's because one position can never fully account for everything, that, that it has a contradiction to it. So you've got this mm. constant evolutionary process, if you like, but it's, but it's based upon an inability to become whole or, or become all. When we talk about China, its ideas around ideology become concrete. It's a very big view of everything. It seems more optimistic than perhaps a view that we are going to be moving towards a positive goal uh, rather than a, a point in time. It's not unsimilar to Christian teleological idea of Definitely, you know, yeah. the beginning of the world to the end of the world. If you're a Christian notion of the world the end point you go into church there's the there's the heavens above you there's the the hell beneath you and at the end of time at the end of the bible the final book revelation tells you that god reconciles man that 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 reconciliation of man and god in hegelian terms is man reconciling himself to his understanding of freedom achieving a complete understanding of freedom and what richard you were saying was you never get there no because within any idea of a notion of, of freedom is its own contradiction whichever age you're moving in, it's worth thinking about what he means by that movement because it's mm. key to Hegel is this idea of a dialectic. And really the core of the dialectic is this positive position, but at the same time, the hardwired difference or the negative. So, I mean, an example, if you think in terms of ethics and ethical gestures, so an ethical choice is laid out as, as necessary, you know, is good or bad, but the reflection that a good choice is only really there through realising it exists insofar as it isn't a bad choice. When you stand back, you know, there are two choices ahead of you. You then realise that doing A is necessarily bad, doing B is good. You only understand B as being good because A is bad. Hardwired into any choice, position A is its opposite. It's negative. And that's what this idea of negativity in Hegel, I think, is quite key within it. So that you never arrive at a point where there's an ultimate reconciliation. The reconciliation, and Hegel does talk about that, the word he uses is is reconciliation. I think that reconciliation is that absolute knowing, knowledge, absolute knowledge, which is the reconciliation to the fact of this radical negativity itself. The the realisation there are two positions and there are two points, and one is perhaps better than the other, but moving forward and understanding the contradiction in the position that someone's in. No, I don't think... It's an end of history in the same way that perhaps Francis Fukuyama's end, uh, a liberal democracy yeah. is the end point of history. So if, if I can understand what you've said, Richard, so far, and try, try, try and sum up, and before we move on to China, Hegel sees history as a process. It is teleological. It has a purpose to it. There is something driving history. And the thing that drives history is the rational mind of man in pursuit of an understanding of freedom. And yet our understanding of freedom, as you said earlier, Richard, when you referred to freedom as having a kind of internal contradicting, an internal negativity, which is unresolvable. So that, for instance, the opening paragraph of the American Constitution sets out in the preamble to the American Constitution, a desire to produce both tranquility and liberty. And you might argue that the American Constitution 
and American society has been trying to resolve an ordered, tranquil state, which provides a kind of freedom, the freedom from disorder, and a libertarian state, the individual freedom, the freedom of the individual, say, to possess a gun. And those two freedoms have within them an antagonistic contradiction, or the concept of freedom itself has within it an antagonistic kind of contradiction. And that moves history forward. Yeah. And we won't know, in a sense, if, if to take the cliche that America is an experiment that is still ongoing, it's too early to tell what the American Constitution works. It might be too early to tell what concept of freedom will we, 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 we be our next concept of freedom. So history is moved forward by the pursuit, the rational human pursuit of freedom. And within it, there is a kind of constant speculative opposition. The opposition contains the understanding that the opposition persists. They never do, then do we ever arrive at the end of history? Well, if we haven't arrived at the end of history already, as maybe Francis Fukuyama kind of proposed, that liberal democracy, liberal free market democracy was a kind of end of history, or whether the right Hegelians suggested they arrived at the end of history sometime in the mid-19th century, or the Marxist end of history, that we end a history with a kind of with a withering away of the state, or whether, even if we do, once history has served its purpose, there is still a dynamic end to history which is unresolvable. So there's the question. Is China today the end of history? Is it a proposition which provides an antagonistic alternative to our understanding of what, say, Francis Fukuyama's liberal, democratic, free market, economic end of history might be? in a lecture in 1830 or something, 1820, and listen to Hegel and go, ah, yes, he, he means the Prussian state. Yeah. And then, then people say, well, Hegel never meant that, because every year he celebrates or raises a toast to the French Revolution. And he was always quite a liberal. And then a century or so later, someone in China can say, well, actually, the Hegelian resolution is China today. It's the unified state without argument, driven by a unified purpose for progress, You've conceptualised the whole, I think, with Hegel. That's, that's well, the thing interesting. Of it. We, are, we are saying a lot, I mean, a very Hegelian idea, and his great contribution, as far as I understand it, is this idea of moving forward. There's a, move, there's a movement to the affairs of man, there's a progress. So do we, sitting here today, believe there is moral progress? We know there's scientific progress. I mean, today you can fly things into space and you can talk to people on computers. We know there's scientific progress. But are human beings getting morally more so, advanced? At the moment, we have a very physicalist view of everything, which renegades perhaps our responsibility towards other people and towards but, the planet. And if everything's just physical, like if you look at neuroscience at the moment, so saying almost, almost the, the idea of free will doesn't actually exist and is a necessary illusion. So the age of science has perhaps moved us away from a moral and an ethical framework and has moved us close towards a deterministic view of human beings, which doesn't allow much room or growth for moral reason. If you take the Mad Maxian view of, of mankind's progress, it's not going anywhere very nice. <laughs> no. What, one thing about Hegel is he exists and writes what he writes before World War I, before World War II, and before our understanding of the Holocaust. In other words, the society of Schiller and the society right. of Goethe 
and the Society of Beethoven started feeding people in the gas chambers and ovens and such like, yeah, yeah. could he have possibly conceived that monstrous misdirection of human progress? Great point, something yeah. so appalling? Probably not. And that all sprung from this materialistic scientific view that started to arise in the 18th century. And it culminates in genocide and destruction and continues today, not in the same vein, but we have this very mechanistic view of the human spirit. We tend to think that things are not, if they're not physical, they don't exist. The feeling that the Enlightenment rationality, it leads to the gas chambers. Yeah. Because of Enlightenment utilitarianism, you know, so you end up with the very rational ends. And the Nazis were dreadful rationalizers of what they were doing, racial yeah. purity, uh, evolutionary process, mad science of, of eugenics. You know, rational irrationality. Exactly, yeah. I mean, I, I wonder whether or not the, the Mad Max Star Trek would not mirror. I mean, I listened to John Harvey. Is it John Harvey? Yeah, David Harvey, uh, 17 Contradictions and the End of Capitalism. The Marxist lecturer. And he said that the, I think the Chinese government tried to ensure equality for everyone by 2000 and a narrative or a fantasy of equality through Star Trek. That's so interesting because the Star Trek universe would be generally seen as a kind of projection of the United States into the future. It sees the starships are aircraft carriers, the aircraft carriers are starships. They fly around the universe technologically advanced and yet projecting liberal values and tolerance and understanding and, and development, which America might see as the sort of a, a projection of the best side of itself. It's a aid from America, service to the world. But what you're saying is actually closer, it's closer in some ways to a China's conception of itself. If you reject the liberal values and look at a technocratic future in which China embraces fully the whole big new cities, uh, electric trains, any kind of technological advance, China wants to be at the forefront, it wants to embrace it, wants to develop it. In a sense, offering a new contract with its people, different to the contract, rejecting the liberal values of uh, free speech, open uh, dialogue, uh, multi-party politics, Western democracy, which it sees as somewhat defunct, and embracing instead a technocratic future, successful, streamlined, and where anything is possible, maybe even flying to the stars. go back to when I was at school and uh, I remember lots of people talked about the Cold War and you talked about the contest between two versions of how to run society and of the two versions if you were the Soviet centralized planning and the collective state versus Western American liberalism and capitalism and the free market what, what we were living through people said was an experiment you know which one would win and then you get to the end of that and so there's then Francis Fukuyama saying that bit of history maybe history but that bit of history mm. is over america won it turned out that liberal free market economics and liberal free market democracy turned out to be much more dynamic much more effective much more evolving and much more successful at, at, at producing wealth than soviet central planning and then yeah. and i remember thinking when i was a kid well that was a kid when i was a younger younger chap when i was thinking that 
people used to say, well, actually, what will happen is there'll be a convergence. And people used to imagine that the, the future wasn't Soviet central planning. The future wasn't American liberalism. It was Sweden. You know? It was social democracy, big state, social institutions taking from the Soviet Union some degrees of economic planning, a distribution of wealth, welfare state, allowing freedom of uh, property owning, market economics mm. to generate, to, to respond to people's needs. And so that, so the future, or mm. Scandinavian liberal democracy. Well, if that, if that did, well, that, that, if that did or didn't happen, it didn't, didn't really happen, did it? Because then no. along came Mrs. Thatcher, and along came a completely different narrative. Thatcher, Reagan, and a sense in which uh, libertarian capitalism got a whole new wind. <laughs> as it were, mm. a whole new lease of life. And, and we became dominated by the world we've lived in for the last 30, 40 years or so, which is extremely libertarian, extremely liberal democracy, neoliberalist ideas, run right the way through, we run schools and everything else about competition and mm. so on. Didn't happen, or, or maybe it did, or maybe that was the synthesis and we, I just missed it. It wasn't Sweden that was the future. It was more, liber more libertarian than I ever imagined. And now there's another contest, and the other contest debates now is, is the future China, which is a kind of authoritarian capitalism, producing wealth in an ordered and managed society, or is it America still? Yeah, and I, I think the Hegelian angle there is, is it, it's in the difference between the two. It's in the, the, in the, the dialectic shows itself through its movement of, of one position not being able to fully account for itself, like freedom out, you know, that if you take the West's views of liberal democracy and freedom, it's it's absolute freedom creates an unfreedom, doesn't it? That's the contradiction yeah. of it. Like we said at yeah. the beginning, it's yeah. it's freedom as far as it's our version of freedom. Rich, when you're talking about freedom, view of freedom we have now, which is quite a, a shriveled view of freedom because it's linked so much to the ego and the individual. Real freedom would be total concern for the other and that's where that dialectic might actually melt away i can't do this uh, you know i'm all right jack approach to life i've got to go beyond that so our view of freedom that we have today we never talk about duty or responding towards the other which yeah. is what you should freely choose and maybe that's what hegel's moving towards when you say when you realize what the goal of human history is is to realize that we should live like that with each other And I think the strength of Hegel here is to see that the whole can never fully, I mean, I use that word ideological closure, don't they? It's, it's that, the idea that it always exists within it, it's threat. So in the late 90s, there are a few people that wrote stuff around the impossibility of society thesis, the idea that society can't become whole, it has to have these threats. And the more we try and emphasize we've arrived at an end, the yeah. more the oppositions or the threats to that narrative become more apparent you know if we can just get past immigration if we can just sort out the well there are so many usual suspects aren't there if you take like sort of the uk you know brexit or then it's if remember at one point it was single mothers there, there are a number of marxist or psychoanalytic thinkers who have mm. taken this this idea of incompleteness and negativity and applied it to ideology and i think if you took it in terms of historical narratives it's always projected on onto some other other groups so the, the job of ideology is to is to naturalize i mean you mentioned earlier dan the idea of nature and, and it's the job of ideology is to make reality appear natural this is just yeah, the way yeah. it is 
when an ideology is 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 working at its most efficiently, that's what it does. It blanks out the possibility of anything other than a threat to it or it's 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 other. That, that is such an interesting point because I think trying to think earlier, why isn't China the end of history? Collectively moving towards great goals, and China has achieved an extraordinary amount. I mean, it, it might be the single greatest good that's ever been achieved is to take about 100 million people out of grinding yeah. into some kind mm. of middle class life. And they've actually achieved that within the space of about 30 to 40 to 50 years. In half a century, it's the most extraordinary economic achievement. But why isn't it the end of history? And it's the end of history because what you're saying, Richard, is that that description of China isn't true. It's because it's the ideological description. It's an illusory description. That's a good point. They're, yeah. they're appropriating the idea of, of collective will. And it's, it's amazing how government, well, not amazing, governments do that. Governments will claim to be speaking for the collective will. This Rousseau idea of this, the general will of the people. The reality of China is that the government claims to speak for the collective will of the Chinese people when actually that society is saturated with corruption and with nepotism and with environmental degradation and with all sorts of internal suppressions of actual free, freedom in any sense that we would know, that we, we would understand it at all. But they, they manifest an idea, an ideological illusion of the collective will. And a bit like after Brexit, I had to listen to all that nonsense that the referendum had somehow the people have spoken and you were shut up in the argument. If you said, like, I think, I think actually Brexit was a big mistake. You've got this idea, you'd hear politicians say, mm. well, anyone who says Brexit's a mistake is being arrogant and speaking against the will of the people because the people have spoken. I thought you were just appropriating the will of the, the, the will of the people is an, an ideological illusion. argument up between Fukuyama's end of history on the one hand, Samuel Huntington's clash of civilizations on the other. And, and really, they're two sides of the same coin. Huntington, it's the idea that the clash of cultures is where the future lies. And then the other is that we arise at an end. Well, the end is always going to have clashes in it because it's, it's structurally impossible to arrive at a collective totality of something without some notion of difference hardwired into it. And that unresolvability uh, argument or that unresolvability interpretation of Hegel's end of history thesis, I think is really useful, not only in, in applying it to China, as, as I did earlier, looking at China as a kind of facade, as a, an exercise in trying to divert attention away from the man behind the curtain, an authoritarian, apparently powerful authoritarian state, which paper over the cracks of really quite weak and fragile society. I think that that impossibility of society, that sort of post-Marxist impossibility of society arguments can be applied to capitalism. Of course they can. And particularly liberal capitalism is today. I think I, I borrowed a bit of Rousseau earlier to say that, that uh, our culture tends to appropriate Rousseau's idea of the general will that appropriated by governments to claim an, a special mandate or a special authority. I think that to use another Rousseauian, frame, very, very famous Rousseau, Rousseau idea of man is born free, but he's everywhere in chains and, and sort of flip that round and say, actually, that in our society, the society we live in, as I see it looking around today, we live in a society where man is uh, born in chains, but everywhere convinced is free. There is a tremendously powerful and very, very successful illusion machine 
which keeps most people in our society convinced that they're individuals, they're their uniqueness, that they're so that they have a liber liberal freedom unattained by mankind at any time in history. When in fact, everywhere we are monitored, observed, data collected on us, persuaded in hidden ways and in others, and also um, a, a political system which produces a series of choices largely the same. So man is in our society largely in chains, but convinced they're free. For Marx, Marx, the young Hegel, say, okay, the problem with Hegel is this, this idea of the spirit of reason manifesting itself towards freedom is too wiffly waffly. What you yes. need an economic, uh, sociological explanation as to how history works, and it works through class, and it works through economics. It works through who controls the resources in a society. Class conflict drives history, and that's much more concrete, says Marx, than any of this idea mm. of the Geist. The, the sort of common theme, if you like, through his thinking is is just this non-resolvable whole, this this absolute, which is in actual fact nothing but this field of of opposites and negativity. And negativity, by that I mean, like I said, like the the ethics example, you know, that a good choice is understood by its other. And perhaps another way of thinking. When we did the stuff on Jung, you know, Jung has this idea of a shadow that any positive action you like it has its own kind of shadow. And I think this idea of difference within Hegel perhaps is a, li a little bit. I mean, it's not like that at all, but it's perhaps a good way of thinking about it in some respects. That it's you know an idea of freedom, if you like, is is understood through un unfreedom if taken to its logical yeah. conclusion. Yeah. But within any conception of the state and how you how people should live, there's a grit in the oyster. You know, something think that is always going going to uh, antagonise it, some sort of antagonistic opposite that will that will challenge whatever view you have of. You said about antagonism there. You know, Leclerc and Muth, who wrote Hegemony and the Socialist Strategy in in the mid eighties. I mean, one of their key points is it was kind of quite a Hegelian view of Marxism they had, and they said that the limits of any of any reality is antagonism so so any concept of a, of a narrative of social sort of ideology is always it's understood through difference which is which is a, a hegelian idea so I think i'm gonna add a trite point you, you talked about the 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 grit what was your phrase you said the, the yeah the grit in the oyster something that the something... grit in the oyster so and that produces the pearl oh there you go yeah <laughs> seamless so maybe maybe the the end of history is that pearl through all these antagonisms that go on it creates this wonderful jewel which is human self-fulfillment in a in an unegotistical perspective you know, i lived in that i lived in that society for two years and i definitely couldn't feel very comfortable say that again you lived in china for two years i lived in china for two and a half years and i definitely didn't see any of that uh movement of the human spirit from 96 to 98 oh, wow. yeah so it's starting to develop yeah so it's just definitely a I wonder what it'd be like now, Dan, if you went out there. Oh, I'd like you know. to go back. It must have changed a huge amount. Yeah, I didn't. Don't think they were close to moving towards human fulfilment and uh, wisdom in the short time I was there. Anyway. Fascinating, isn't it, to actually have experienced that at that particular time in history when it when China is changing. Yeah, just when it was so changing. Rapidly. If you're American today, you want or American mm. or Western, particularly American, as America has been the dominant power for a century or so, half a century or so. 
why is it China can build infrastructure better than America? Why American roads and bridges crumbling and China's got all super highways and electric trains and don't know what? China's expanding at a faster rate than America has expanded since the, the 1890s, whatever. You could. Because it doesn't have the problem of democracy. And yeah, absolutely. Democracy that's, slows that's, everything down. And that's China's argument, isn't it? 10 or, 10 or 15 years ago, under, under previous Chinese leaders, Deng Xiaoping. Uh, Deng Xiaoping and such like, there was always yeah. a kind of grudging acceptance that they, they, they weren't ready for democracy yet. They were having to go through mm. their, almost like their dictatorship of the proletariat. They had to go through that. And they would meet Western leaders and Western leaders would say things about human rights in China. And the Chinese would look, sort of stare at their feet rather guiltily and say, yeah, well, it's all very well for mm. you to say, but we're not there yet. But they don't, China doesn't say that anymore. They come up with an alternative. Yeah. And it's better than democracy. They used to say with Hong Kong, one country, two systems. Yeah. But they don't say that anymore. The, the new rhetoric from China is China has, has, has harnessed the power of capitalism and solved the problems of liberal democracy, which results yeah. in people charging up the st stairs of the of Congress and ransacking the Congress building and such like. And they look at exactly. that and say, no, we've got order, we've got stability, and we've got collective progress. Not like you in America with your with your massive inequality and your brutalizing of black people by the yeah. police and such like. You One know. thing I noticed in conversations I had, usually going backwards and forwards from where I lived near Wuhan in Jingzhou, whenever you had a conversation with people on the train, they wouldn't talk about initially themselves first. They'd be saying, what do you think? This is some time ago, 96, 97. They said, what do you think of China, our beautiful China? So there was this kind of idea that the identity was attached entirely to the nation rather than, you know, your own personal life and your own family. And then that would come later. One of the great achievements, as you said, John, earlier, is that, is that China was on its knees in the 1960s, um, the biggest starvation in human history, wasn't it? 60 million yes, people yeah, died. Yeah. And then they had the Cultural Revolution. So dragged all those people out of poverty and aspiring to the same things people would be aspiring to over here. Whether yeah. that's an achievement with climate change and environment, I don't know, because we can't all be living this kind of life. It should be moving the other way, perhaps. I mean, Hegel talks a lot about the, the state, doesn't he? I mean, uh, it's interesting when you look at it from what you're describing there, Dan, the idea mm -hmm. that self-interested activities of individuals are the, the instrument of this sort of world spirit. And, and this is really yeah. the... the the state, if you like, for Hegel, and the state okay. is, is realised in this freedom. So in, in some respects, though it seems uh, the, you've got this idea of equality there that, that exists. It's an idea of equality, really, that doesn't actually exist. Again, going back to the idea of China being somewhat of a, a facade or an illusion, the Communist Party promotes the idea of a kind of collective equality. It's the, it's the equality of an objective, one state, one mission, the greatness of China, in which the individual is subservient to the interests of the state, and yet, conversely, they're able to pursue their own interests. It's a, it's a curious mixture of a place in so many ways. What has China got to teach America? Is there going to be some sort of, you know, go back to the old idea of convergence? They have a universe, they have a fairly universal health service, although... I think it's got massive infrastructure. I think they're seeing climate change as a massive problem and they're looking ahead. Uh, I think they're way ahead of us 
in terms of preparing for uh, zero carbon. But also they've got their hands uh, across the African continent. You know, they've got lots of contracts and deals with African states. So it's almost reinventing the 19th century there. The West is, is no longer in Africa as much as it was, but Chinese imperialism is quite big. Two thoughts about that, really. I, I thought uh, uh, there's a lot of paranoia in the West to think about China, and some of it's very Orientalist. For the Orientalist notion of China, Edward Said kind of sense, framing yeah. the framing of the East as being inscrutable and mysterious and morally, morally not as, you know, morally, morally not liberal and such like. In that sense, when you hear people say, well, they worry about the number of Chinese companies or the, uh, the fact that Huawei are something devious. <laughs> there's a famous anecdote. This is when, you know, when Nixon went to China in the mm. 1970s and Henry Kissinger met Cho Enlai and he spoke to yeah. Cho Enlai and he says, Kissinger, Kissinger was a big into history. He, Kissinger was a great histor history writer. He wrote, his, he wrote mm. histories of the 19th century. And he said to the Cho Enlai, he said, well, what do you think, he says, is the consequences of the French Revolution? <laughs> you know, who, who would ask the Chinese this? Cho Enlai paused for a moment and said, hmm, he says, it's too early to tell. Yeah. <laughs> and they <laughs> took that to mean that the Chinese think in centuries. But apparently it was a misunderstanding. And, and Cho Enlai thought he was talking about the current riots that were going on in, in Paris at the time. Right, right, but, yeah. But, but, but Kissinger took away from that an idea. The Chinese, they think in centuries, and we think in, you know, decades. Again, a very Orientalist idea. I think there's a, there's a danger that we become paranoid. In America, there's much more of a debate about America should take China on. I mean, Trump, yeah. Stealing, of, well, and, and under Biden to a degree, stealing of intellectual property that the Chinese definitely do. They, are, they simply argue that's what the West did for, dec for centuries. I mean, they stole Chinese technology on silk making or, or ceramics. So when China steals intellectual property on intellectual technology, that's the Chinese that. argue that's just taste of your own medicine. Just, just as when they bribe their way into Africa, they say, well, that's, that's what you did. The scramble for Africa you invented. Yeah. Really don't see their, see, see a lot of hypocrisy in their Western horror at the rise of China's military. to you talking about that the idea of truth and post-truth definitely within Hegel and perhaps within this when thinking about China and America I wonder if is there the same within a Chinese culture whether or not there is the, the concept of post-truth as we understand it now and, and by that what we mentioned earlier about is contradiction in a society I wonder I wonder how that exists within China the, the media there is is it taken seriously Chinese people had enormous faith in the state. Is that still the way nowadays? And, oh, yeah, yeah, the, the social media is controlled. Google has limited access. All the algorithms point towards, you know, the, the messaging from the Chinese state. So I think that the feeling is as long as you can buy and sell, uh, you don't need to do anything else. That is the Chinese contract, isn't it? It is, yeah. Take, take a sort of contractual view of China, a kind of Hobbesian contract. Don't worry about freedom. Don't worry about individual personal autonomy. If we want to put a if we want to put a railway train through your village, the village is just going to get moved and you can just get lost. Don't worry about any of that stuff because we will deliver ever increasing wealth. Exactly, that's the that's, view they have. That's the from what I picked up, yeah, and it's and it's seen as a, a a miraculous turnaround. Until it's not. Well, the other massive thing they've got to contend with is they have the world's largest population. Most other much smaller democratic nations don't have. Yeah. So they've got to, that's their main priority, making sure most of the people have 
food in their stomachs it's if they don't then they have a riot in their hands and look at chinese history it's always been one of riot and war uh, because of the nature of the population there how long can that keep going for decades they could simply turn to the chinese people and say you do you know remember how it was only a few decades ago we had massive famine only a few decades ago before that we had the period of what they call the national humiliation when the west just pushed china around for a century yeah. yeah. So we were humiliated. We were poverty stricken. And that, that has a big sway on Chinese people. Any older person can tell any younger person today how awful it was not so long ago. That's yeah. going to end at some point, isn't it? Well, I'm not too sure. Looking at, looking at Britain's example, we're still harping on about World War II. Most people who are alive in World War II are dead. I do think the essential fragility in China is that contract. The contract can't. China can't keep delivering growth at this kind of level forever. There's all sorts of bad stuff around the corner for China, not, le not least de sort of demographic collapse as their ageing population catches up with itself. The one-child policy is going to be turning into an absolute disaster. Their population will collapse in the next 10, 20 years, maybe as much as a third. All sorts of ways in which this breakneck growth won't continue. But how then do you answer the Chinese people when you say, well, you, you still can't have the freedoms. If, if, if you follow any kind of lesson from history at all, as they become more difficult to manage, as economic times become harder for the Chinese government, they'll become more authoritarian and they'll become more restrictive. I think they're fairly authoritarian already. They'll screw the lid down tighter and tighter as it becomes harder and harder to justify their uh, lack of freedoms as the economic miracle dries up. The, the, the whole world goes if China goes, you know, because that's where the working classes are living in China or have been because they've been generating all the products for the whole world. So that's another paradox, isn't it? Although we're so paranoid about China's uh, rise in power, they are the providers of everything you want. Yeah, everything. Well, if you go into the supermarket, it's half the stuff is Chinese. They, they yeah. solved our problem of, of stagflation by producing yeah. unlimited amounts of goods. You know, they, they solved the supply side of the economic yeah. problems of the 1970s. Or by turning the Chinese people into the proletariat of the, work of the world. Right. And that's why everyone aspires to be middle class now in the West. Because there's yeah. no working class, it's because they all exist in China. We've moved a long way from Haiti. We have. I forgot you lived there. Fascinating. Were you teaching? Yeah, it was one of my first teaching jobs, yeah. And, wow. Uh, I'd love to go back to like a time show. The, the small town I lived in has now got its own airport. Curious to see that. For a future podcast, so if, if we can, this relationship between equality and freedom, we could talk about at another point. Yeah, I think the reason there's lots more to say about equality and freedom is because that, as Hegel would understand it, we're continually agonising over that problem, and that is what's driving change, discontent, history uh, forward. You know, um, what is Hegel said, Napoleon is history on horseback. Agonising over freedom and agonising over equality is history in action. History is thought in action. Well, one of the thoughts I've just had, of course, is that the, the great post-Hegelian is Marx, and Marx predicts that, or rather uses economics to drive history forward rather than an agonizing over ideas. It's the idea, it's the ownership and it's class conflict, ownership, sorry, ownership of resources and class conflict that drives history forward. Well, if you look at China today, you could argue that uh, since the Chinese are quite successfully turning millions of Chinese people into consumers and consumer values and consumer ideas of freedom tend to be consumer ideas of freedom, i.e. the consumer's right to choose, to choose between different types of soup on the supermarket shelf, 
different types of cheese, different types of washing up powder. And choice of the consumer translates into a frame of mind, a, a, a kind of world view of an individual, uh, a, a wise consumer. And the wise consumer become, wants to consume politics in a similar way. It may be that uh, the West has very successfully manufactured an idea of the consumption of politics, which itself is quite an illusion. But nevertheless, in the end, Chinese people will desire to make the kind of choices in their political life that they make in their supermarkets. No. If we, yeah. accept, if we accept that Hegelian view of, of history potentially resolving itself into some sort of universal and or ultimate understanding mm. of freedom, that certainly isn't China. Is it a United States? Is it America? Though? So if you went to countries like Egypt or somewhere like that, and you, you're on the streets, and you, are, you ask a group of people who they thought the country that was the most problematic country in the world, the one that was behind most difficulties, certainly in the Middle East, they'd often point to the America. America was supporting Israel, America was interfering, America was imperialist, America was a bully, America was, in, was, was exporting a sort of corrupted culture. But if you said, then, then it asked the same group of people, where would you like to live if you, if you couldn't live where you are now? It's almost always America, the most resented country, but the most desired country. That's a good point, yeah. It's that Mark Fisher point that we mentioned at the beginning, and it's the one where he says, about the working classes. Why do they vote conservative? You know, why do people want America? Because I'm rich yet. I, I am I am rich, I just haven't got the money yet. <laughs> it's, uh, it, 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 it's that, isn't it? Yeah, or, or, the, or the American dream. So that the humblest American aspires towards president. some sense of, quite a long time ago, in the very early 90s, I taught for a year in the States. And very curious cultural difference among American school kids to British school kids, is American school kids were deeply convinced of their own universal ability to just about do anything. Yeah, a report like we got at school said he's no good at this subject, and I wish him well. You know, well, yeah. you never, <laughs> you never get... Back in, well, when I was at school, kids, teachers would just blatantly tell you you were thick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you try hard, but it's no good. never amount to anything. Richard, you were talking earlier about Samuel Huntington and the clash of civilizations. So you had liberalism, liberal societies with their acceptance of you know, diversity and uh, diverse sex sexuality on the one hand and deeply conservative societies. Go to China today, and I don't know if you found this, Dan, in the 90s. The one thing culturally, they were surprisingly, they'd be surprisingly similar. Kids wearing blue jeans and listening to music and playing computer games. There's yeah. been, if there's been some kind of victory of end of history, we're all, we're all becoming increasingly like Americans. If you see imagery of Chinese streets, Today, it is its genes. It's and, America. It's, it's America. It's America. Yeah, and whether that is what Hegel thought was the end of history, <laughs> in terms of a goal where we just go buying and spending and just consider our own appetites, is probably it probably hasn't been worth the journey. <laughs> <laughs> the, the guardian of the gates of the end of history, Ronald McDonald. Ronald McDonald. Yeah. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> and then. And then we just got Looney Tunes. That's all, folks. Yeah. <laughs> I think Hegel will be saying that's not what I meant. I'm sure Hegel has, I'm sure he has some famous last words, like if, if you thought you understood me, you don't, that's attributed to okay. him. Another one of Hegel's most famous observations was the owl of Minerva flies at dusk. 
Yes, yeah. Yeah. There you go. So, so in other words, you don't really understand where you're going until you're there. It's at the end of history that you'll look back and, you know. Definitely. Like looking back on your life as a very old man, open yeah. on your mat and say, yeah. oh, was it really that simple? That's what it was about. One thing that strikes me, though, is the future. In, in the Star Trekian future, they're technologically extraordinary. They can, they, can, they can replicate food and all that. They seem to have solved disease, solved hunger and all that stuff. And they're not dead clear in the Star Trek universe what the kind of political system is. But it does appear to be something like a liberal, a liberal democracy with capitalism because they're buying and selling things. They meet traders and such like. So maybe it's like that. The, the Star Trek image of the future is America, but just technically better at doing what they do. Well, in the United States, an underlying inequality and cruelty. And Absolutely. I think it's our culture as well. I can't escape Britain as well. There's an underlying cruelty to capitalism, an underlying cruelty to, to our culture which is masked all the time by our liberal sensibilities. Great point, yeah. You know, which, yeah. I, which I think can't, cannot be the end of history. We've got a long way to go before we liberate ourselves from all sorts of horrifying inequalities, contradictions, and, um, and cruelty, really. I think cruelty is a tremendous mm. characteristic of our culture. Yeah, totally agree. triad john gibbs dan rollins and richard miller as we discussed hegel and the end of history hope you enjoyed it and if you did leave comments or observations or suggestions either by recording them or emailing them to me next time we will be considering the olympics and post-colonialism and the ideas of edward said and the discourse of orientalism thank you for listening